This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Saturday, June 8th, 2019. Um, Dornall, he's like muted. I'm, I'm, I'm extra muted today. Oh. Hello, good morning from the beautiful left coast. But wait, why... Why are you extra muted? I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> He's <Sorry>. muted again. <laughs> how are you doing, Daddy Warpick? How was your week? Okay, well. <laughs> how are you doing, Dornell? How was your week? <laughs> well, I tell you what. Uh, it's been... It's been a long week at work, to be honest, but I made sure to get my geeking in. Uh, I, I went and saw a new comic book film. You may not know there was a comic book film coming out this week, but, uh, but X-Men Dark Phoenix, the most famous X-Men comic storyline, uh, is a mediocre movie. Don't see it. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> see, right, the funny thing is, I almost went to see a comic book movie this week um my brother lives like six hours away or seven hours away uh and so we don't see him very often and so he drove all the way down for a big family function and he was going to be here for three days so he just crashed on the couch here and we were going to go hang out and and go watch you know a movie play some video games whatever and i got so sick like we were dead set going to go see the movie the first day, and I couldn't sit, go see it with him. It was Shazam. That was the comic book movie. Uh, I got so sick I couldn't go see the movie. And then day two rolled around, and I was dead set on going to see the movie. And I got even sicker on the second day. And then day three rolled around, and I was still too sick to go see the movie. So. Uh, my brother drove seven hours to come hang out with me, and all I could do was lie in bed being asleep because my body said, I don't care. I'm shutting down for now. <laughs> oh, that's that's too bad. That's too bad. I, On the I other won't... hand, I didn't have to sit through Dark Phoenix, so that was, you know, I guess that was a benefit of being massively ill. You know what? You know who would enjoy Dark Phoenix? Uh, I, I, I don't actually. <laughs> I, I, there is there is one person uh, or one type of person, one fan who would love to see Dark Phoenix. And I don't think they're listening to the show. If I were to draw a Venn diagram of, of this audience and the, the audience of our show, I don't believe there's any overlap. But the types of people who like to do or watch makeup tutorials on YouTube, <laughs> they're the ones the the and and I'm talking about not just the makeup jobs of uh, the monstrous characters, right? Nightcrawlers in it, um, Mystique is in it with their blue skin and, and markings and everything. Really cool stuff. Beast um, was in it. Beast was in it, right? Uh, cool costuming, cool makeup job. But the normal-looking human characters, including Mystique in her Jennifer Lawrence output, have like gobs and gobs of, of of fancy makeup everybody's dolled up 
um, every time they do a close-up of Jean Grey, all you can see is how perfectly shaped her eyebrows are. I swear, that's how that's how dull the film was. That I'm just sitting there going, "Wow, this is this is an amazing makeup job." So, <clears throat> uh, so I, I'll, I'll guess I'll guess I'll ask uh, our special guest today, uh, Bradford Walker. Uh, welcome to the show. You're also a fan of the show, and uh, am I correct about this? Uh, Am I correct about the fan overlap? Are we going to get any interest in in the makeup jobs? I think you're correct. You know, when you aim a aim a film at twelve year old girls who do makeup tutorials or shoe on heads fans, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of overlap. Am I supposed to say something? Is that what that, that, that that's means? no that that that's fair. That was that was me being on mute again. Um, I, I've, I've got an itchy trigger finger today. Um, no, that, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, you mentioned shoe on the head. That's a YouTuber, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess, I guess she does makeup and stuff. She started off on makeup and then she got into the skeptic community. Oh, she, that's yeah. And then she, now she does videos where she dunks on people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a period of time in between those two when she got involved, uh, you know, kind of unofficially part of this uh, massive internet imbroglio about five years ago, four and a half years ago. And she had a lot of great things to say during that. Yeah. So well, I don't know what happened after that, because that's when I kind of lost track of it. But Well, uh, uh, Daddy Warpig, we haven't asked you yet. How was your week, bro? Um, I'll be honest. Uh, my week is just the same as uh, every other week. Research, research, research. Uh, writing, writing, writing. Development, development, development. And uh, I did, though, some of the development I did was, it, it. most of it's been for a long time in world building, and then it went to uh, plotting and characters, and then I dance back and forth between all that stuff. But this last week, I've done a lot of stuff on rules because some, you know, some concepts that I've been playing with in my mind, I uh, managed to uh, make them a little bit more, to, just to improve them or add a little, uh, some other extra elements. So it wouldn't just be one piece of advice in the Game Master advice chapter that you could actually get fully two whole pieces of advice on how to run a game well. So that's what I've been working on is, is coming up with absolutely at the very least two more. So I did want to talk about that today because I remember the last time Brad was on the show, we talked about role playing for, for quite a lot of it. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's, that's been my week development, working on things, working on mechanics, um, working on GM's advice. And uh, I also, um, I, I'm trying to take the advice of our guest uh, a month ago or so, who said we should talk about things that we really love. So I wanted to talk about specifically uh, Super and Sucky. Um, that there were, I have played recently in the last several months four different post apocalyptic video games on my Xbox One. And I wanted to talk about whether these video games, one at a time, were super or sucky. Uh, the very first game is Mad Max. came out in 2015. I didn't get it for like a year and a half until it was on super, super sale. 
um, for like, I think 15 bucks or something. So then I bought it and it was great up until this one race, the one race that everybody knows about. Um, and then I didn't play it again for up until, you know, late last year. I finally played it. I finally finished it. And I have to say, everyone who told you that Mad Max is, uh, and I believe it's from, anyways, it's, it's, it's a good game. They were all right. Everyone who told you it was a good game are right. It is a good game. Um, and go ahead and go get that and play it. Uh, it'll, it'll, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, the next game that I played was Far Cry New Dawn. Now, Far Cry New Dawn has been poisoned by Ubisoft's microtransactions where far too much of the game is based around grinding for supplies to build up your base to get better gear so you can confront the in-game bad guys. And because you can buy all those supplies with real-world money, they made it especially extra super-duper grindy just so uh, you would be convinced to spend real-world money um, to, to play their game. And it, it really made the game bad. Um, it just it got boring and grindy. And I love the Far Cry games. I played Far Cry 3. I played Far Cry 4, the you know DLC for Far Cry 4. I played Far Cry 5 and all the extra uh, content from it. And I was hoping this would be another great Far Cry game that I could just kick back and enjoy, and it was not. So Far Cry New Dawn is sucky. Um, and again, this is a late a late review. A lot of people have come to this conclusion, but all those people who told you that it was bad are in point of fact telling you the truth. It is absolutely bad. Um, the most recent post-apocalyptic game that came out is Rage 2. Um, and I played Rage 1, and it was enjoyable. It had some shortcomings, but it was enjoyable. And I played Rage 2, and I absolutely loved it. Everything was cool. It was really awesome for about the first third of the game. And then you get really, really bored because all of the missions they have, it's an open world. Uh, all of these games that I want to talk about are all open world, post-apocalyptic games. So they're on the near vicinity of each other. Um, and Rage 2... Once you've done all the side types of side quests several times, you get bored and the game's just a grind after that. Now, they didn't have any, you know, microtransaction foolishness or whatever. It's just that they didn't put a whole lot of variety into the game. So, Rage 2, also sucky. And the last game I want to talk about came out earlier this year. It was Metro. Exodus. It's the third uh, Metro game um, after Metro 2033, Metro Last Light. This is Metro Exodus. It's a direct sequel to the two earlier of the games. And again, it's uh, it's an open world-ish game. And 
I played it all the way through twice now, once to really, really enjoy it, the second time to really, really, really enjoy it, because I had a new game plus, so I could go back in with, you know, my gear, but their new game plus system is kind of wonky, and it's not as cool as you'd think it would be, um, but the game was still fun. Uh, I like, like the enemy types they've got. They've made some artistic upgrades and changes that made the enemies look more awesomer, um, more awesomer. I said that on purpose. Um and the game was interesting, and it was a lot of fun. Um, it is a first-person shooter open-world game, so um, I would recommend it. I think it's super. I think uh, if you like that kind of thing, especially if you played the other Metro games and like them, you'll like this game. Um, and that's it. Those are four open-world post-apocalyptic games I have uh, played recently and I'm telling you guys about the two good ones because they're excellent. Mad Max, excellent. Uh, Metro Exodus, not quite as good as Mad Max. Still a great game. Well, that's cool. I've never heard of the Metro series. How old is it? Um, well, the original ones came out on the 360. Um, and I, I'm thinking like it might have even been 2010. I can Google it right quick. But yeah, it was it was a while ago, and then they did a refurbs because they they were kind of cult hits. Like not a lot of people um, played the original two. They when they came out, it was the this specific studios really their first kind of bigger games, and they were a hit. But they were a cult hit, and there was some um, there was some difficulties, uh, bugs, but they ironed those out. They kept on updating it. And then all of the questions that people have um, were uh, all of the problems, all the complaints people have, they addressed in the next game, uh, Metro Last Light. So Metro 2033 uh, and Last Light came out during the Xbox 360 era. Uh, yeah, 2010. 16 March 2010, oh, wow. um, and then they remade them, and the neat thing they did on the remake is this. In between Metro 2033 and Last Night, or, or Last Light, they changed a bunch of the mechanics and added some stuff and made it, you had two options. You could play it with the gritty original mechanics in the original 2033, or you could play it in in uh, you know, a little bit more action-oriented um if you wanted like an action movie feel. And the neat thing when they brought them out, they called them the redo. When they brought them out on the Xbox One, they were native, they had native graphics, and they took all those new mechanics from Last Light and put them in Metro 2033. So if you wanted to play with a more action movie feel in 2033, you could. And that just made both games so much better. Um, and made it for a wider audience. So neither game really had the chance to get the full audience they could have, but I think Metro Exodus got to a lot of people. They were definitely cult classics, and a lot of people talked about them. Cool. Um, that sounds a lot like uh, Mass Effect and Fallout. Um, Mass Effect, of course, is, was a little bit more than a, a cult classic. It was, it was pretty widespread. But from the same era of games, the 360 era. Yes. Hey, so let's let's talk about Space Knights and stuff because we we brought Brad Walker on the show and and he's written a thing and it's been out for a couple weeks now, right? A little over a week. 
that's amazing. I've I've been reading the um, I've been reading the ebook version of it. Uh, so I, I'm really excited to hear uh, about it. How how's it going? Well, I, you know, it's now that the book is in the wild and I'm finally at home and I'm settled in. You know, it's going pretty good. Um, you know, apart from the usual bureaucratic nightmare that is the medical system, the <laughs> I've been do, doing just fine, and I'm getting ready to finally get started on on book two. Well, uh, okay. <clears throat> so for the uninitiated, uh, which until like three days ago was me, uh, what is this? What is the Star Knight saga about? Hmm. Well, the Star, you know, Star Knight saga started uh, pretty much the same way that Cole and Onspock's, you know, Galaxy's Edge did. We looked at the contemporary state of Star Wars, said this sucks, and decided to roll our own. Uh, they went, you know, they did their thing and focused on the soldiers. I wanted to focus on the knights, and uh, when I when that got started about the same time, um, shortly after I did uh, the Ghost Fist Gambit for the Pulp Rev Sampler. That's when I got the idea of, uh, of you know, of uh, going whole hog on all the stuff I like about, you know, I like about science fiction. And that's when the Pulp Rev was getting started. That's when a lot of us started digging into the past, you know, in the past of both Western science fiction, we started noticing parallels in Eastern science fiction, you know, with the Gundam franchise and the Macross franchise and the super robots of the 70s before that. And I'm going, why not marry the two? So I did. And <laughs> that's that's awesome. You just just put them in a blender and go. There, mm -hmm. uh, there is a whole lot to be said for examining the past of science fiction and fantasy because it can help illuminate the present in ways you never really considered. Um and I'm going to make this very, very short. Last week, I got a copy, not a physical copy, of a comic from 1952. It was Our Army at War. It's the same title that eventually gave rise to Sergeant Rock. And so I read the comic, and I posted uh, screenshots or, or you know page captures from it online. The most important thing for this discussion in Pulp Rib is this. It was a comic with four different separate stories in it um, set in different theaters of the war and um, with different branches of the military. And then it had, uh, you know, an actual humorous cartoon, a Sunday cartoon kind of style. Um, but it was clearly a bridge between the pulp magazines and full-fledged comic books because it did have four different stories that shared no common characters or elements. They weren't connected anyway. They were just four separate stories. So kind of like pulp magazines had where you'd have, you know, story by one author, story by another, so on and so forth. Um, and they were imaginative. The stories were imaginative. They were not cliched. Like I've seen a lot of World War II movies. They were not cliched. Um, they were not what I expected going into the magazine. Um, the art was uh, was for the the production time pressures prevalent back then was good. They used the medium of comics itself imaginatively. They weren't always just boring straight exactly as you expect it panels doing the same old thing. And so 
you came from the pulps and then through titles like this that eventually gave rise to the comics we know and so by going back and looking at some of these things from you know the after campbell takes over you can see where the the pulp spirit kind of went into um into comics like this and kind of get some vision kind of uh glom onto it and say okay how can we take this apart and use it in writing stories because i think the the point of the pulp rev is not to write a pastiche or a copy of old pulp stories it's it's kind of a what if it's like what if modern science fiction instead of being built off of campbell had been built off of the golden age of fantasy and science fiction had been built off of you know weird tales and all these others and i think that's a great and fruitful way where you can take modern tropes marry them with the pulp aesthetic and produce really imaginative works and it sounds like that's what brad is uh has been doing yep yeah. pretty that's pretty much the case um yeah well let, let, me, let me say i i felt the uh, sorry to interrupt but as a reader i want to give you that feedback that i you, the Star Wars influence is evident because it's not, it's clearly not a Star Wars story, but you've, uh, you've brought those elements together so that uh, when you describe a, a laser sword fight between, you know, a, a hero and a villain, it's, it's vivid, right? Like you, you, you know what that's about. And that's based on that grounding in uh, stories of the past, right? You you don't have to in you don't necessarily have to invent the tropes and and things from full cloth. For which I am very thankful. <laughs> and the great thing about writing nowadays is that so many companies are in effect just destroying their worlds. Uh, and turning them into political propaganda and whatnot, that they're just leaving all the good stuff lying around for people who aren't there for the propaganda, for people who aren't there to preach, to come along and pick them up and start making cooler stuff that uh, they, they've left a, they call it a, a market opportunity, right? <laughs> a competitive opportunity. Uh, and so you can make great stuff because people are going to eventually get tired of the trash. And when they do, we will be waiting. Yes. Uh, so th this is really cool. I, I, you've been writing for a long time, Brad. You've you've written online for years, and you mentioned before the Pulp Rev sampler. But is this your first full-length novel release? This is my my first full-length novel release. You know, I like all, every other novelist out there. I've got a couple that are sitting in the trunk that will probably never see the light of day, but. Uh, this is the first, you know, actual effort I put out in, put out, published, put up for sale. Yeah, that's great. Oh, that's that's quite a milestone. Congratulations. That's it's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, you you put a lot of you put a lot of work into that. How long did it take you to actually finish that? Um, most of the work was was in the pre-write phase. So it's me figuring out what I want to do, how you know how to do it, and all that. Uh, Drafting, once I actually started drafting, that, that's when everything started speeding up. That took about a month to put out, you know, to put out the first draft and then went back and cleaned it up. And then I handed it by that point, I was ready to hand it off to my editor, Brian Niemeyer. Uh, you know, 
Dragon Award winning and nominee author in his own right, you know, author of the Combat at Frame Exceed series and, you know, the Soul Cycle series. Um, you're welcome, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, Brian's awesome. Uh, Brian's awesome. Uh, I haven't heard of uh, anyone who's worked with him. We've talked to you and a couple of other authors who's worked with him, and, and they, they always have good things to say about him as an editor. Oh, and I have to concur. He is, he is a fantastic editor. He's also a very meticulous editor. When I got my manuscript back, um, I, I got the manuscript back from him. There were notations on notations on notations, like several per page, um, including things that I didn't know about, which is uh, um, writing conventions for ships, which uh, for ships and some of which I had to learn which applied to what I was using, which applied, which did not. Uh, and uh, combining characters and all of that stuff. So, Oh yeah. I, well, it was quite the, quite the learning experience. You know, Brian, in, in Brian taught me more about effective writing and one with one round of editing than I ever got through formal instruction. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. And you benefited from his experience uh, also authoring spaceship battles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because I got to I was reading the first XC book. Uh, you know, I was reading the first XC book while I was doing you know the final round of rewrites for you know for Reavers. So uh, you know, I got to actually see you know see what Brian was doing. You know. You know, while I was putting, you know, fin putting finishing touches on my own work, uh, and at the same time, you know, at the same time, and I know Brian's been been critical about how visually oriented people are when they start writing, uh, trying to emulate other media, and he's right about that. You know, it's a, it is what I consider, you know, a, a you know, an, an expected flaw, but nonetheless a flaw, and I need to work on it. But, um. At the same time, I was I was uh, pulling up stuff off YouTube that I was using as reference material to figure out, okay, this is this is what I want the reader to you know, what I want the reader to notice. How do I put that into words? And you know, I was looking at things like uh, the the last two parts of the Gundam Origin series. I was looking at uh, uh, clips from the various Macross television series, Zeta Gundam. Uh, the Star Wars films, the good ones. Um, you mean good one? There's one. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's only one. There's only one. One uh, original trilogy film which has a space battle worth a you know worth noting, and that's Jedi. Uh, but you know, I was looking at the Battle of Yeah, you know. Battle of Yavin for star for some starfighter stuff. I was looking at Endor for some other, you know, more fleet battle oriented stuff. Uh, clips from the animated Clone Wars series, and you know, that's just stuff I could find online. And then I'm digging through my my library for other things, uh, grabbing up my pulling up my copy of A Princess of Mars for you know for you know for sword fight you know for you know, looking at how to how to put together a sword fight on the page because burles loves his sword fights trust me on that one well i i, I can definitely i i recognize the inspiration i'm about i want to say two-thirds three-quarters of the way through the book and and you i can see that 
I can recognize that you've brought in all those influences uh, uh, and and so just put them all together you and the what I wanted to say is I think that uh, first of all it is a it's it's a fun and, and interesting story beyond that uh, the writing is very clear <laughs> which that <clears throat> I don't some some might take that as as uh, you know, faint praise but what i mean is most of the things i read are sort of hard to get through mm -hmm. right especially uh, you know newer authors or 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 fresh authors it's it's tough to get through it's maybe a little dense or there's lots of terminology to get through or something like that and i i think i believe you delivered on what you set out to do which is clear uh, action-oriented adventure with all the stuff that you like in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I don't, you know, there are some people I know of who would, who would take clear writing as a kind of a, you know, kind of a backhanded, you know, backhanded compliment, and uh, all those people have trad pub contracts, <laughs> or did, and uh, I don't. It's like I I still remember when I was in university and I was in uh, you know, yeah I was in graduate school at the time, uh, taking one of my elective courses you know, under a under a literature professor. And I remember the sour puss look on her face when I flat out stated no. The first duty of fiction is to entertain. Nothing else matters. If you can't get that across, you lose your audience, and they don't care what else you have to say. That's the spirit. Um, well, I, I like it so far. I, I think you're doing a, a pretty good job, and I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the next one. You said that you've already started working on it? Yeah, I grabbed a... I grabbed all the handwritten notes I put down while I was in while I was hospitalized and re in recovery, and I started transcribing them last night. So, you know, I'm putting together the outline for the first draft, and I'll get started on the first draft uh, probably later today or tomorrow, and uh, you know, beat that out over the rest of the month. So, you know. Expect me, you know, for, you know, expect me to be looking for beta readers in about three weeks. Well, I've got one for you. Uh, Mixed GM in chat uh, points out that every hot-blooded male loves a good sword fight. So I, I believe that is uh, an implied request for more sword fight. Oh, you'll get one. There you go. There, there's, you know. Um, when I was actually when I was talking with my my artist, you know, man who did my icon, the man who did my cover, uh, a lot of the concept art that I posted during the original uh, Indiegogo campaign last year, uh, Ardenon, yeah, he, you know, he and I went uh, went back and forth, and he asked me, well, what do you want to do with the cover? And I said, I said I want to do something that hasn't been done before. And I dug through the covers for DVD covers and TV show covers and movie posters on both sides of the Pacific, and I never found a you know found a cover or a poster that had a guy with a laser sword, 
a giant robot and the space battleship all on the same cover two of the three but never all three <laughs> it sounds it's it's the most petty thing i could you know, you know i have to admit this is a petty thing but you know maybe the sales experts in the audience will you know will say other will tell me otherwise but that i said it has to have those three elements and there will be on the cover two guys with laser swords for book two and uh because one of the centerpieces of book two and it's in my outline is that there is a laser sword fight in free fall over mars Ooh, that sounds like fun that sounds like something you want to see as a like an action set piece in a film right mm. oh yeah or 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 anime as you probably prefer uh <clears throat> I, I think I think the cover is really cool. Who's your artist, by the way? Uh, I no. I work with Ardenon. Um, same, you know, the same. Oh, I Ard should have guessed. Yeah, because yeah. of because of the colors, he he is. He you can tell by his colors that it's Ardenon. Mm -hmm. Um, he's yeah. he's doing all the uh, mecha art for uh, Brian Niemeyer's Exceed series as well. Yeah, he he did the he did he's the art for the build a mech. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, there's, I have a picture, you know, I have a picture of the uh, of the the Oklahoma on my hard drive that he did. It's colored. I just haven't, you know, released it yet. And it is he 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 did some things I wasn't expecting, but I'm gonna work. I'm gonna go with it because it's really cool. <laughs> uh, the same thing happened to me when uh, when I did the build a mech with him. Uh, we had a conversation uh, with me, Brian, and Ardenon, and he kept coming up with ideas. I just went with them, more or less. I, I I gave him my input too, but but every time he said something, it was interesting and it added something to the concepts. Mm. Uh, I I thought that was really great. Mm -hmm. So, uh, with with Reavers, I set out. You know, I set out to do basically. You know. This is my Star Wars. This is my Star Wars with Christian with Christian knights and you know with Christian knights and and Christendom in in space, you know instead of the blackjack and the hookers. So, you know a lot of the historical underpinnings behind you know behind galactic Christendom really do find their roots in the medieval period in Europe. So you know, and some of this is some of this is meta, and some of this is actual text. Um, and the you know the fact that Lord Roland is in, is named for and has his persona based on the both the historical and the legendary figure that's deliberate not only on my part as a, as an author but on the but in setting deliberately done by the church to provide an inspirational figure to the people so that they have somebody to rally around and you know. Yeah, because because you use it as a title, don't you? It's yeah, the, it's it's a title. Uh, I didn't flesh it. It's it's not mentioned in the book because I didn't I, you know, I hadn't developed it to this point yet. But uh, there are twelve star knights split into two subsets: the three, the archangels, who are mentioned in the book, and then Lord Roland is one of the is one of the nine junior knights who are who are uh, I have in my notes now as the nine martyr lords. And the theme is that every one of the nine the nine martyr lords 
uh, is supposed to represent somebody, either an actual you know, Christian figure or a noble pagan, uh, who nonetheless suffered and died died in some kind of in some kind of military fashion for the you know you know for the faith or for their nation for their nation in a manner consistent with Christian principle. And uh, Roland, of course, is from the Song of Roland. The other the other one I have noted is Galahad, who represents the matter of Britain. And I haven't decided who else who else sits among the nine martyr lords yet. I will be fleshing that out over the course of the series. That's, that's a great opportunity. You leave yourself a little window to add new characters as, as you mm -hmm. need to. Oh, that's in, that's interesting. And I, yes, the obvious influence by medieval knights in Christendom is obvious. Even in even in the artwork on the cover, it's not it's not just space armor. It's space medieval knight armor. Yeah, and uh, it's not apparent on the cover, but it, I do. I don't hide it for very long. Is that this is not this is not literal knights in space. It's, you know, like you know Paul Anderson's High Crusade. This is high tech. You know, this is high. You know, high techs. You know, space opera. You know, space opera in as one would expect. You know, you don't have laser swords without similarly similarly technological armor to go with it. But and this is you know this is something that I think I understated in the book, is that uh, the Star Knights tend to get the tend to get the best of everything because there are so few of them, and they cover the entire galaxy, so they tend to be the best equipped, the best trained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're meant to be the elite. They are my lensmen, and yeah, yeah, so, you're right. It's it, it, that was it was understated in the book. Uh, just it was implied that you know someone someone would say star night and the piano stops playing and everybody looks and goes oh no <laughs> it's, is that a star night we're all doomed that sort of thing mm -hmm. so it was, it was it was definitely understated i think there's something there's something else that that i noticed oh the, i was gonna say that the medieval knight thing was more of a it was more of how you modeled the social interactions. I think you, you had a setting where people either were nobles or LARPing as nobles, that sort of thing. They, yeah, we're in the we're in the far future, but we're going to obey the uh, etiquette as a royal court would. There's, you know, the the, the planets run by a duke, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah, but, and that's that's not just a setting conceit on my part. Um, you know that that again you know that again is is an influence of the church and you know of the church as uh you know as it emerged out you know out of the this cataclysmic event which will become you know more and more of that what happened a thousand years ago a thousand years prior which is roughly our time now you know actually it happened about almost seven years ago uh is going to be is going to be uh, made clear by the end of the series, because what happened is is that you know bad stuff happened. The world we know, the world we know when we live in now was destroyed. The church was the only stable institution that survived and ended up reconnecting all of the po survivor pockets together 
in order to in order to recover. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't just you know let's rebuild our cities. It was also oh we now live in a monster haunted you know, you know wasteland. We have to deal with this first. So welcome to the Crusades, kids. You know Dave's fault. You know start the meme wars and. You know, the giant robots came out of that. A lot of the technology, you know, that is now prevalence was stuff that was originally preserved by the church. And the influence of the church going forward is not just spiritual. It's also very often, um, very often, as it was in medieval Europe, you know, they preserved the knowledge that came before and started passing it out, passing it out as needed to help to help you know mankind recover and you know to recover and then flourish well that wasn't entirely uh that wasn't entirely without internal debate within the college of cardinals you know originally there was a there was a question of okay we figured out what happened to lead up to this disaster how what can we do to prevent it happening again and they were the ones who who were like, no, I think we can go with monarchy, you know, mon you know, with with you know, with monarchy or monarchy, you know, you know, institutions as our basis for now, you know, you know, the, the remnant of the church that survived was very much a a react the reactionary element of you know of the real world of real world Christendom as it exists now. So we're not talking about your, you know, we're not talking about the current Pope. We're not talking about, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the more liberal traditions, all of that ended in fire. So in, I'm glad you use the word reactionary because it sounds very much like a neo-reactionary's uh, dream, but it's not an extrapolation of uh, where things are now. It's, it's as if what would happen if, some awful thing happened and we had to press the big reset button what might come out of that is that right yeah pretty much um you know it, it's but, but that's just the that's just the background of of yeah. the setting that just that just it's sort of not really important to what happens uh, in the story which is very much about the you know the the people and and the forces fighting each other over. Mm -hmm. See, I I liked you know, I like the idea of being efficient with you know with my world building, you know. Um, so what I do when I you know, what I try to do when I put when I put down a manuscript when I put down the manuscript as I did with the first book is that I focused on telling the story and I wanted. I wanted just enough elements of the you know of world building there to imply the larger world the way the original Star Wars trilogy you know did with and uh, what I think the prequels and definitely the mouse the mouse films have have gone wrong with so the idea here is that I know what you know I've got my nice you know pile of notes you know, pile of notes and all that stuff that I work with, but that's the massive chunk of ice, the proverbial iceberg that most people, most readers won't see the first time through. Um, they'll know, you know, what they notice, you know, you know, what they notice is everything that's implied, everything that's, uh, that's mentioned because it's relevant to the plot. But 
uh, certain other things I will, you know, certain other things will probably be missed because I only mention it in passing and I only mention it in passing because it's not relevant to the plot, but it needs to be there for purposes of verisimilitude. Sure. So you're, you're, you're trying to establish continuity and, uh, verisimilitude, as you said. So that sort of leads me to, uh, a question I have about your plans for the future. You, you've started this book as the Star Knight Saga book one. Are you intending to tell uh, a contained set of stories in this universe, or is this meant to be a long-running setting where you can tell all sorts of stories? What's what's your intent? Well, this series, you know, this series focusing on, you know, focusing on, on uh, the current Lord Roland is meant to go nine books. Um, I, I haven't even, before I published Reavers, I already had plans for a, for a 10th book where Cretan is the focus of the story, you know, who is currently a 10 year old boy. Uh, this would happen several years later, uh, several years later when he's a squire and he's age 16 and, uh, it involves, you know, you know, that came about because I had to answer uh, answer a question that I knew was going to come up and the answer to that question was compelling enough to become a story in its own right so um, you know I that's that I'm I'm jotting away at so that when the time comes I can go straight from straight from uh, picking up the project to immediately start working on the manuscript by have, making certain I have an outline ready to go. And that, that story is going to be different because one, it's going to be more or less a tragedy. Uh, two, two, it's entirely focused around one planet, unlike uh, the other books, which is going to be, you know, the other books is going, you know, the books if, like Reavers is going to be primarily centered around centered around three significant areas. If for three significant areas over a th over three acts is roughly how I structure the book. And when I get around to doing this this uh, this side story, it's going to be it's going to be focused almost entirely around one place because it's built it's set around a siege, and it's you know it's basically my you know it's the basis of that story is the siege of vienna the one that sabaton sings about okay that's great i mean the the cool thing about doing such a spacefaring science fiction setting is that you have the freedom to zoom in anytime you need to to tell a particular story <laughs> about a particular place uh, but it sounds mm -hmm. like it sounds like to me that you've you've got an open-ended uh, concept. As long as as long as you've got interesting planets and stories to tell in this universe, mm -hmm. you're going to keep doing it. Yeah, pretty you know pretty much the what I figured was the downfall for a lot of franchises, a lot of media franchises is that they focus too much on one set of characters, and you know, you end up sapping the vitality out of those characters if you you know if you you know tell the story tell their stories for too mo for too long because you start running into places where you know, where the the 
the type of stories that made those characters popular and beloved, those stories run out. And if you keep going back to that well, eventually you're scraping the bottom. And that's when things start going bad. And we see that with, with Disney doing this with, with the original trilogy characters. Um, no, the, the thing to do with that is the way, the way the, uh, it's been done in Japan with their big franchises. Uh, the Gundam franchise shifts the emphasis on you know, the shifts the emphasis from from one series to the next, either either introducing entirely new casts or bringing back some favorite characters like they did early on with Zeta Gundam. But they introduce new characters who tend to be the focus. You know, the it's you know the protagonist is a new character. The story's about that guy. Um, and that's managed to keep things pretty, you know, pretty fresh for they're going on 40 years for Gundam and almost that long for the Macross franchise. Wow. That's a long time. I, I have a slightly different perspective. I think many television shows and, and serial novels have a couple of characters or a cast of characters that are extremely popular and, readers or viewers will tune in week after week, month after month to watch those same characters do that thing. Examples in books might be uh, the Song of Iron, Ice and Fire and Anita Blake or Jim Butcher's uh, Harry Dresden novels or on TV, stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or what have you. That sort of, it could be either an ensemble cast like Buffy or a, a single character thing like Harry Dresden. Actually, Harry Dresden's got an ensemble as well, but but I think the point stands. So is it is it more of a question of knowing when to stop as opposed to not using the same characters over and over again? I think it is. I think there is a point where you, you know, there's a point where you clearly need to stop. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I know the joke that, that goes on from there, but, you know, I've seen where, you know, when you've seen, seen uh, series, series, regardless of the medium, where they hit a point where they should have stopped, but they keep going, and it inevitably ends in a trash pile. You see that happen over and over and over for like decades on end. You end up noticing a pattern, and at that point, you really don't need to do it yourself. <laughs> You, you just figure out where you need to stop, you stop, and you move on. Interesting. Uh, it'd be great if we had more of that. Uh, someone in the chat mentioned Tarzan, Megabuster Shepherd. He's really excited about your books, by the way. I noticed. <laughs> uh, Tar Tarzan's uh, one of those characters who's transcended that. It, Tar the, the original Tarzan story had a beginning, middle, end, but Tarzan, the character, doesn't have a beginning, middle, or, or end. No. Uh, he, yeah. He's just a character that, that you can tell a certain kind of story or certain kinds of stories about, and you just use them whenever you want to write a Tarzan story. There's the character. Just use Tarzan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, 2080's Judge Dredd has become the similar sort of character. And the way, the way I notice you can get away with that is if at times you use the famous the famous character not as the protagonist but as the viewpoint character 
the viewpoint character or as the character uh, uh, who moves the plot along. But the story is actually about someone else. And you, know, you see that a lot with the Judge Dredd stuff where... Yeah, know, they did that with Judge Dredd in the most... The one, the raid ripoff. Uh, mm -hmm. That was homage. Yeah. Sorry, we'll call it homage. No, and, uh, the Judge Dredd movie was was started and finished and shot before the raid was. It just happened to be released after it in the United States. Oh, yeah. So who's copying who? Well, in any event, you have the right idea there because that you know that you know the Carl Urban movie with you know with him as Dredd. Besides being the better of the two Dread films, um, really did a really did a, a fantastic job of using Dread as you know as the point of attention, but not the protagonist. The protagonist was Anderson, and that's you know that's the way you can get around the problems of of using a character who otherwise has pretty much hit their shelf life. Uh, Batman, some of the better Batman serials are you know use that kind of structure where he's the guy who drives the plot he's the guy who's who's in on the action but it's not about him it's not you know it's about someone else sometimes it's actually about the villain and those that's are, interesting that's yeah. interesting sorry to interrupt can we digress about that for a second because they've the writers of batman and and other superheroes have attempted to end the character right let's show bruce wayne as an old man he's getting old and slow and fat and that sort of thing even in the films uh with uh, ben affleck and and it's it seems like a mistake batman should be one of those eternal characters such as tarzan mm -hmm. right yeah and you know this is an you know the other way you can get around the problem, and this is what Walter B. Gibson did with the shadow, you know, is that the shadow is the shadow has his agents, and sometimes the you know sometimes you can parse you can stretch out you know you know structure a story rather such that the agents carry the plot either in whole or in part, and. Uh, they, you know, that's another way of getting around the problem of overusing a popular character and wearing out their welcome. Um, it, you know, I, uh, you know, for, uh, there was an anthology that never got published, uh, that never got published that I contributed to. I want to, uh, uh, I, where I tried to do that. <laughs> I want to drop something in real quick before I, uh, before I forget it. Um, the very first Conan story, Robin Hood and King Arthur. All of those are uh, characters. Robin Hood, King Arthur, and Conan are all characters who have become iconic. They've become kind of larger than they originally were than themselves. They're sort of permanent fixtures in culture, at least right now. Each of those three have the same thing in common, which is we know how they end. No matter what adventures they go on, no matter what stories you tell about them, King Arthur is going to meet Mordred in a battle and die. Robin Hood is going to be betrayed by someone and uh, lose all of his blood. He shoots an arrow, and wherever it lands, that's where they buried him. 
And Conan, you know, is going to go on and get old and become a king and go through those problems. Um, and I believe that was the very, very first Conan story was mm -hmm. the end of his legend. So when you write something like The Dark Knight Returns or all of the other stories, later stories that have kind of come in in that vein where this is Batman's, you know, kind of final tale. Um, it's not so much that they're trying to kill off the character. It's not so much that they're trying to end the character. It's that they're trying to play into the same sort of mythos as King Arthur Conan and, and Robin Hood. Give the character an ending, but you can tell however many stories you want in between then uh, and, you know, wherever they are in their timeline. That's a really interesting insight. Uh, I wonder... I wonder if it'd be a good idea to do that deliberately. I, I'm not sure you could argue it was deliberate on the parts of the people who wrote those stories. Uh, it's it's tough to tell, especially with the authors being long gone. But I wonder if that isn't a great way to start a a a character. Uh, I mentioned Harry Dresden earlier. Harry Dresden, we know, is cursed to have a terrible fate, but. Uh, Jim Butcher never spelled that out, so we don't we don't really have the answer to that yet. Uh, so it's it's kind of open ended, but that's a really good insight, Daddy Warpig. Back to you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that you know, knowing even if you don't publish publish the end of that character story as you know early on, it I think it's a good idea to know how that character's story ends before you start you know before you start writing especially if you're doing doing a series and i do know how roland's story ends um and you know the other thing i want i want to uh make you know i want to point out right now is that um i'm a you know there's a an rpg designer by the name of ken height he also does he also you know looks into and dabbles in fiction but he put out a an essay a couple you know some years ago called the iconic hero where he tried to analyze why characters like james bond conan so forth these these eternal characters uh retain their their draw generation upon generation and he did so you know speaking in term in literary terms he contrasted what he calls these the iconic hero with what uh, the litfic crowd is loves, which is the dynamic, the dynamic hero. And the difference being that the iconic hero isn't you know is not necessarily changed by the events of the story, but their core ethos is further refined, and the dynamic hero, on the other hand, is changed by the events of the story. So it's an acceptable theory. It works, you know, it works, it squares. You can go to whatever he's referencing and check it out for yourself and see if it fits. So I have one, one of each. Um, dynamic hero stories tend to be what uh, superhero, the you know, superhero stories that are origin stories focus on. You know, somebody who, somebody who goes in, who gets drawn into the superhero world, whatever, whatever specific type you're talking about is changed because of it and becomes a superhero or a supervillain. 
And then afterwards, they tend to become iconic. And then the core ethos, which is brought out by the origin story, is only further refined as you go down this, you know, as you go down story after story from that. Um, in in Star Knight, that function is 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 uh, done by Cretan. Um, I want to point something out about Ken Height's theory before we get too far field from it. Um, one of the things that happens with iconic heroes is that very often their beginnings, their first stories that are written about them are not, uh, are very different from what they actually become when they become iconic. And there's a process of trial and error, a process of winnowing down. You can see this most clearly with like Batman and Superman. Uh, in the very beginning, um, you know, there wasn't any notion of Krypton in the very first Superman story. So that was happening later. And his costume was different. And his personality and his goals and his motivations and how he acted were all different. And those got changed left and right and left and right until they hit that sweet spot where the character became what they would perfectly beat where you hit the perfect encapsulation of that character and the same thing happened to batman you know you went through a while where alfred was just some uh just some guy and then he was uh alfred was actually bruce's uncle and they changed a bunch of different stuff about his mythos until you know sometime around the 70s um, he crystallized into the perfect archetypal form of Batman and everything else since then has either been about that Batman or in reaction or contrast with it. And, and so in order to get a, a, an iconic character, you have to have gone through enough small revisions in them, uh, retcons, if you will, that you hit on the perfect encapsulation of what that character is. Now, some people... They get lucky and they get it right out of the gate. Congratulations, that's awesome. Like Spider-Man was out of the gate, bam, the perfect iconic representation of what Spider-Man is. But most characters don't hit that right out of the gate. Um, and I would also posit this to everybody listening, that becoming or reaching iconic status, you have to have not only a textual description of the character, you have to nail their iconic look. And their iconic look is almost always not what the writer, and we're talking about just written fiction now, not comics, not what the writer put into their work. Like Conan, I I'm sorry to all of the, you know, Conan purists, Robert E. Howard purists, his iconic, his status as an iconic character was not nailed until Frazenda, per, uh, depicted him as a barbarian with, uh, you know, loincloth who didn't wear anything on top. Big, muscly barbarian. That became the iconic Conan because that was, for whatever reason, exactly what Conan was meant to be. Or that was, you know, whatever you want to say. That was what Conan was perfectly. And everybody is stuck with that because that is who Conan is supposed to be. And, and I don't know why. I can't tell you why different elements are iconic. I don't think anyone can. I don't think it's possible to, to nail that exactly. But I do know that if you take Justified, the TV show, the main character in Justified, um, in the stories, he has a much, much smaller hat. 
And But when they went to look at him to put him on television, they realized, no, what he needs is a bigger cowboy hat, and that nails his look. Um, and then you have people like Jim Butcher, and I'm sorry, it's possible Jim Butcher's Dresden doesn't have a hat. But on the cover of all of his books, he has that kind of big hat with the fancy buckles on it. And it's possible that as much as Jim Butcher wants to insist that Dresden doesn't wear a hat, it's possible that that hat is actually truly what you need for that character to become iconic. And so, and it may be, I don't know everything about this kind of stuff, but I do know this. Characters do not become eternal and iconic until they have both a strong characterization and a strong visual presence. Like James Bond may wear all kinds of stuff, but the iconic James Bond is the man in a tuxedo with a Walther um, and black hair with a, uh, with a one of his cocktails in his hand, shaken, not stirred. That's the iconic James Bond. However much that did or didn't appear in the books, that's the iconic James Bond. That's who James Bond is supposed to be as a character. So the quest to make a character iconic or to make a character eternal is a quest to winnow down, focus in on those elements that are perfectly apt for what this character should be or needs to be, and then nail that and also Get people to do concept art for it so you can see, yes, that's best. That's not, maybe you'll get it right. Maybe you won't. Maybe somebody will, you know, cover artist for the book will, or, or maybe a fan artist will come in and do things differently. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to give you advice on how to do it, but I do know this, that it, you also see characters who never become iconic because something essential about them, either something needs to be taken away or something needs to be added. And I'm thinking of Cyborg here, who's had like 30 years of publication. DC Cyborg, who you may have seen in the recent Justice League movie, he isn't iconic yet. He kind of has a care, something missing. There just isn't something that they've put together right. So that character hasn't been able to reach iconic status yet. So once you hit that iconic status, once a character is most perfectly what it's supposed to be, trying to get away from that too far is just going to make an inferior story. So, and I don't know that authors need to get to an iconic status. You can still have a good, productive, profitable career without making all of your characters or even one of your characters uh, reach that iconic status. So don't necessarily worry about that. But you were about to say something about uh, the person in your world who did certain things. I apologize. <clears throat> well, you know, I've, I set up, you know, I set up the, the story so that over the course of the series, uh, you know, Roland doesn't change, you know, doesn't change much at all. And pretty much what does happen is, is what, is is kind of expected for a man of his stature to have happened to him uh but the really the real big life-changing stuff you know life-changing stuff the i'm transformed because of all of this all of this stuff that that i experience kind of character uh the one you know that's going to be you know that's right now that's cretin um he starts as a 10 year old boy by the end of the series he's 16 and you know 
And Cretan, Cretan is Roland's squire, right? Uh, right now, he's a page. He's too young to be a squire. He will be a squire later on. Mm. Yeah, that's part of the reason why, um, why right now, uh, Ro- in in Reavers, Roland runs around with uh, his sergeant in arms, who is actually Cretan's father. And yeah, right now, the 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 function of a squire is more or less split between Sibley, the father, and Cretan, the son. Because uh, Cretan is is more or less too young to really be doing the kinds of things that an older squire is expected to do for his knight. Um, and uh, what by the time you know by the time he you know Cretan does reach sixteen, you know he's gotten what amounts to six years of on the job training, training as well as his own physical and, me- and physical, mental, and emotional development. But he doesn't come out of it unscathed. <laughs> well, sure, there's space battles and space pirates and and alien monsters and stuff, of course. Mm-hmm. And um. Certain, you know, the next book we actually get to meet Cretan's mother, uh, he, uh, and Sibley's wife, Henrietta. She's the she's the mistress of the household, and the, you know the reason she shows up is because there is a significant amount of time and therefore uh, action at Roland's at Roland's home, which I mentioned that I put it in the chat earlier and I posted it on my blogs, is Mont Saint Michael in the Normandy region in France. Uh, he t- that's been that's been the seat you know the the physical seat you know the re- the residency and home base for for the seat of Roland for, you know for some time and Galahad's seat is it's is the sister site across the channel yeah <laughs> so cool cool um, well, there's there's some other funny stuff that happens in the book too. You, you don't really take a, a comedic tone. It's 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 fun. It's adventurous, but it's not very, uh, and it's not heavy. But it's it's also not meant to be as a comedy either. But I had to laugh at the beginning of the book. I know this is coming from way out from left field, but I think in the first or second chapter. You, when you introduce Roland, the first thing he does is put the space princess on Thought Patrol. Like was that was that that was a deliberate decision, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a deliberate decision, but it also you know when uh you know it he's 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 effectively a military man and he's out there on military business. So, and this is not the first time he's had a very beautiful beautiful and woman. You know, throw her, throw herself at him, and you know, and uh, he just had he doesn't have time for this. It's it's actually a pretty funny scene because she she you know cl- thinks up a ruse, ruse to get in you know get near him. She's like, oh wow, this is the famous space knight. Yeah, he's a real hunk. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go chat him up, and he's like. Space princess, I'm here to protect you from certain danger. I don't need none of this. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. So, so is that the begone thought moment there? Exactly. Exactly. He's like, I, I'm, I'm here to, you know, protect you and this planet from, from an attack. So. 
I don't have time for your business. No. Which is why, you know, you haven't finished the book, have you? No, no, I'm I it's I'm in middle of a very exciting uh, massive space battle and and they're about to bring out the big guns again. So I'm I I'm I'm at about what I hope is the best part. Um, and it's it's been fun so far. It's been lots of, of shooting and space action and so on. Okay, so well, I won't spoil the I won't spoil the end you know the ending, but um, it's you know you know Gabriella you know Gabriella is you know my heroine is she she's sheltered she's naive but she's not stupid that's you know that's something I don't I really hate stupid stupid heroes and stupid villains um, you know people who are not quick on the upkeep and don't adapt very well i don't you know i basically hate idiot balls so i try to avoid them oh i see brian's in the chat hi brian um yeah so uh when gab you know gabriella gets her time to shine and this does not go unnoticed <laughs> you know, that's un great yeah, no, and that's that's good. You you've established that too. It's it's very much in the vein of Princess Leia, right? Like, here's your space princess. She's in danger. She's been she's been spoiler. She's been captured by someone much more powerful than her, but she keeps her wits about her. She does what she can to try to escape or improve her situation uh, or get help. That sort of thing. It's it's it's, it's nice and refreshing. We don't need uh, it. We we can have uh, you know an amazing, uh, fun, interesting, strong space princess without falling into either the helpless damsel hole or the uh, action girl hole. Uh, mm -hmm. it, that's that doesn't seem like it's too hard to navigate between those two holes, but so many writers uh, leap willingly into one of them. Um, yeah. and 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 your character doesn't do that, and, and I like that. No, uh, she's capable. She's capable in her own. You know, she's capable without being without being. You know, you know. Let's put it this way: Brie Larson would not approve, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, the you know what I did early on with her, establishing her as you know she has her own little entourage. She's she's a comp. You know, she's a competent leader in, in her own right. It's just that she's not a military leader. She's a, she has her little musical entourage. That's what she's known for. And she manages to make her skills useful to, you know, useful and plot relevant by the, you know, through, you know, by the time everything, you know, everything concludes. And um, it's a good, you know, and that's going to be a consistent theme with her you know, theme with her in the series is that anything involving her, you know, her plots, you know, her specific subplots is going to end up being music related somehow. I can count on it. Oh and no, you just spoiled that she survives the book. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you name a character after the, you know, after um, one of the, after the living goddess of music, or rather one of her, you know, one of her alter egos, um, 
you can't have a character. You can't not avoid not having music being a significant part of us, part of the story. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who miss, you know, who don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Yoko Kano, the you know Yoko Kano, the Japanese composer and composer and musician. Not, uh, not Yoko Ono. <laughs> God no. <laughs> Just to be clear, yeah, we, yes, we use we use the uh, composer musician with Yoko Ono very sparingly. <laughs> no, no, not John Lennon's ex. You know, <laughs> with massive square quotes. No, I'm talking about somebody who's actually competent. <laughs> cool, cool. We're um, we've been over an hour, even with the late start. Uh, so I'd like to wrap it up here in the next couple of minutes. Is there anything in particular you want to talk about or or tell us about the the book that you haven't yet? Um, the you know besides some of the other you know. Besides a lot of the uh, other Easter, you know, Easter eggs I've uh, I've sprinkled throughout the manuscript, um, some of which are are more going to be more relevant to to some readers than others. Um, the ones you know, the one I spelled out in the you know it, by in the uh, the afterword of the book is that both the both the Oklahoma and her captain uh, are actually references, you know, the, the Oklahoma is a reference to the battleship of the same name sunk at Pearl Harbor. And her captain is actually my great uncle, uh, based on my great uncle, Kenneth Holm. Uh, that is my tribute, you know, tribute to a man I never got to meet who nonetheless, uh, from what I knew from, uh, my, my, my mother never met him either as far. Yeah. I don't think she did, but her older siblings did know of him. Did know him, and from what I've gathered, he was actually a pretty great guy. He was a you know pretty great guy, career sailor. Unfortunately, not an officer. He was a seaman, but you know that was that was a little something that I put in for my family. Is uh, the, you know made made the Oklahoma and her captain you know you know like that. The other is that uh, Zuzu the Painbringer is actually based on my my main character in World of Warcraft. Uh, cool. Well, that was a really sweet thing to do for your family. Um, I hope I'm sure they appreciate it. For a minute there, I thought you were going to say your wife. I was like, oh, that's uh, <laughs> old. The I'm character after you, really? What's his name? Zinzu the Painbringer. <laughs> that's the upgrade from the old ball and chain. We're we're going to start calling our old ladies the Painbringer now. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, and I studiously avoided any any form of self insert in this book, and there will be no self inserts in the series. Oh God, no! I have no interest in make in putting myself in you know into this in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh, not deliberately, anyway, right? Not deliberately, but I did put actually. You know, I did put a you know a friend of a friend and and now technically a colleague of mine into the book. Um, when I originally start, when I originally uh, created Dash and Jack and his and his right hand man Gory, they were based off of two people I know. Uh, one of them is the author Scott Lynch. That's Jack, and uh, the right hand man is a is a guy who is a, a mutual mutual friend of ours. Um, and the two of them combined were originally intended to be my my little shout out to uh, to 
Scott's character, um, Locke, you know, you know, Locke Lamora and, uh, Jean, you know, and his right-hand man, John, uh, who's met who, you know, Jean in, in, in Scott's books is, is a short stocky guy, but he's burly. And, um, because I want to, you know, I went with something different. He's more based on the actual man, you know, actual man, both Scott and I are, you know, used as a reference. So, you know, the, the actual man that Gory's based off of is actually taller than me. Well, <laughs> and I, I stand six foot three. Holy cow. I, I, I had friends that tall in high school. They, nobody ever messes with you when you hang out with them. <laughs> yeah. Last, you know, I haven't talked to him in a long time. Last I, last time I checked, he was working as an EMT. So, you know, He's off there doing the good thing, saving people's lives and, you know, dragging them out of, you know, dragging them out of whatever, you know, accidents they get into. Good for him, really. Uh, that sort of you, talking about the Easter eggs and, and characters uh, reminded me of something. Are, are you going to do another crowdfund campaign for your future books? And if yes. so, are we going to get to build mechs and characters like Brian? <sighs> Um, yeah, I gotta say I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to it. I'm going to, I, I'm going to do another Indiegogo campaign. Um, I don't know exactly when, you know, don't know exactly when, um, but I will be doing it. I'll probably be doing it before the end of the year. And, uh, having seen how well it worked for Brian. Yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to, they're going to be, I'm going to put in, build a Mac, probably build a ship too. Oh Yeah. I mean, that sounds good. And I'm, you know, just actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to put in one option, you know, one build a, you know, build a widget option that is going to be, you know, I want to see just how, you know, just how many people out there have more, you know, are either far, you know, far more, you know, far more, uh, have far more, uh, disposable, disposable income than I, you know, than, than I think. Because there's build a mech, build a ship, and then there's build a space fortress. Oh, I want to build a space fortress. Yeah, but that one I'm that one I want you know that one I'm probably going to make a really big premium. <laughs> Let's see if anybody wants to do that. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I don't know exactly you know like I said I don't know exactly when I'm going to do it. Uh, considering I'm just getting started on book two, and I have I haven't even released the paperback version of Reavers yet, uh, you know, and the and being being effectively laid up for four months didn't didn't, didn't do me any favors, but no, and and we haven't we haven't talked about that. Your, your release was delayed because you were in the hospital for four months, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you haven't really talked that much about it. And if you do, if you don't want to go into any details, that's fine. But it sounds like you were, uh, you were in a really tough situation for a long time. Um, what I, you know, it turns out I was an undiagnosed diabetic and, um, Oh no. Yeah. I'm, I was an undiagnosed diabetic. I didn't know. And I got, you know, I had, uh, you know, I, I had an infection on the underside of one of my feet and, uh, it went bad. You know, it went really bad, really fast. And, uh, the reason I didn't handle it, I didn't handle it properly is because I was, it, 
I was also bedridden sick for two weeks. And oh no. Yeah. Because that was the beginning of December and I got the flu. So bam, bam, bam. Next, you know, by the by the time I was able, to, you know, I managed to shortly after I got the the uh, backer copy, the ebook copies started sending those out to backers. That's when uh that's when I had to be rushed to the hospital. And because because you you were sick with the flu and you didn't realize that you had such a bad infection. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, I you know once I get in shortly after the new year, um, they w- within within an, an hour I was in the emergency room and a couple hours later I woke up and I woke up and they had to amputate. Oh no. Yeah. So. I wasn't actually in the hospital proper very long. I was there for 10 days, but then most of those four months were spent in a rehab facility. Oh, I see. Right. Cause you have to <laughs> rehab is a big part of that happening. Yeah. Uh, I actually recovered, re- you know, all I recovered actually pretty fast. Um, but most, most of the people and you know, most of the people that, that the therapists I worked with, you know, who were amputees, they had low morale. They were they were in far worse shape physically. They had terrible. They were in a bad place mentally. And I'm sitting there going, "Okay, this happened. It sucks. Let's you know, sucks. Well, let's move on." And you know, I that's, have- a, that's an incredible, incredible attitude. And and you, I mean, you're obviously in good spirits today, and and you've got a lot to be you know proud of and happy for. So that's good. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so now I live, you know, I have a prosthetic like now and, you know, I'm not going to be running any marathons or, you know, climbing any mountains anytime soon, but I get around well enough and, you know, sure. You know, when I, you know, I've got, I've got a wheelchair if I need it, I've got my cane, you know, so, you know, wow. Yeah. That's 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 incredible. I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you're getting around okay. I'm I'm glad that you you pulled through from what could have been uh, you know a disastrous situation, uh, and uh, and you you you're well enough and you're you know a lo- that would I I can imagine that would really hurt a lot of people uh, psychologically and mm-hmm. and you're just out there plugging away putting out new books and everything. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's been it's been great talking to you again. I'm so happy that you got your book out. I I've I'm almost finished with it, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about the next one to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and for and for my part, special thanks to everybody hanging out in the chat. Um, Brian Emmett Shepard, uh, not John Dacre, not him, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Jeffro as well. Uh, thanks for hanging out, guys. And uh, to you and my awesome co-host, Daddy Warpig, who will probably send us off. Oh, any sure. last thoughts Any any last thoughts from you, Daddy Warpig? I, I'm here. I will say this. If you want to look at how you make something, or how something ends up being iconic, uh, to kind of add a little coda to the uh, what rant, I guess, from earlier, take a look at Batman the Animated Series. Although, there were characters in that series that did not have the um, did not have their iconic personality and characterization reached, like Catwoman, who began with uh, being some kind of uh, in- environmentalist um, instead of just a thief. 
that show established the iconic feel and look of virtually all of Batman's villains and Batman himself that if you want to look at what a Batman story should be, people either have that in the back of their minds or if you use those elements, uh, if you understand those characters in that way, then they will be very, very happy with the Batman they get. So that was, you know, that show created Harley Quinn. That show established the background of Mr. Freeze, where his wife was sick and he had her frozen until he could come up with the cure. All of these things came out of that show. And for whatever reason, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini uh, managed to absolutely nail the quintessence of Batman and most of his rogues gallery. Um, and so if you're looking at how things become iconic, Batman the Animated Series became iconic because the people making it knew for whatever reason, and it's a mystery to me, I'm not trying to proffer, to, I'm not trying to proffer you a big theory here or, or a checklist. These are just things I've observed. Um, they nailed what those Batman villains and Batman himself should be. So that is a good... Uh, just a, it's an interesting insight into that process. Okay, that's it. Um, I want to thank everybody in the chat uh, who came and joined us. Uh, you know, uh, Jeffro, uh, not John Daker. Um, we had also uh, Mega Buster Shepard. We had um, Emmett Fitzhume. We had Brian, uh, our former uh, host. Uh, Coyote Khan dropped in, um, and Industrial Faith dropped in. Uh, everybody who came in and listened to the show live got a chance to participate. There's been a good discussion in the uh, in the chat. So remember, if you can come and listen to the show live, um, then you get to participate in the chat and have your words immortalized on YouTube until they decided that we've done something wrong and kick us off like they're doing with apparently everybody else now. Um, by the way, you can get the show on YouTube.com uh, at YouTube.com slash GeekGab, and we have uh, all of our shows posted here on the site. You can also get us via SoundCloud, the iTunes Music Store, or the Google Play Store. And just so you know, the rumors that we are going to be charging $999 for the podcast on the iTunes Store are false we are not going to be charging that much for our podcast, although it's probably worth it. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show today. Thank everybody who will be in the future tuning into the show and is listening to it. Um, just do a search for Geek Gab and all those sites. Geek Gab for all those sites. You'll be able to find us and get us on whatever device you want. We are leaving you for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.